13 letters. What we gonna do right now is take a brief look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Take a look at what he said to him and how we can apply it to our own lives. Let's get it. Yes, yes, yes. Breath, we listen to this exposition. Paul wrote the Philippians, some lessons for living written in them, but it's real good text for Christians. Read it closely. Hope we can catch the vision. Chapter one, he tells him he's blessed to get him. Co-laboring with him to serve the best who's risen. And he's confident the Lord will perfect in Christians. When he started and hard to be corrected in him. Listen, he was in prison now, maybe never getting there. But all he could think about was the gospel getting there. Some was even preaching Christ from selfish motives. Coming in power. But now he shrugged the shoulders. His focus was Christ, the Messiah made. And for him to live as Christ in the die was gain. Yeah, he was hard pressed, but to remain in the flesh it was more necessary so they faith would progress. Yes, he wanted them to strive together for the gospel in one spirit, one mind. Listen to the apostles, maintain the same love, uplift your brothers. Don't just look out for yourself or for the interests of others. Oh, our life is nothing but Christ is all. So conduct yourselves worthy of his righteous call. Amen. Hey, um, just before I get into what God has for us today, uh, a lot of you have asked me, even this morning, I had some of you ask me how Brian is doing. Um, and I know it sounds crazy to say this, but I don't really know. And part of the reason I don't know is because he's on sabbatical, and part of the sabbatical was to completely unplug. You see, if Brian and I were still having conversations, since most likely we'd be talking about work, we're talking about how things are going at Grace, and he's not supposed to be thinking and doing work stuff. So he literally is unplugged. He's not on email, um, and we're not talking. We're not not talking. We're just not talking. Um, but what we do know is that Brian is in Nyack in New York right now with our dear friend Martin Sanders doing a two-week intensive um, part of a doctoral study. It's something that Brian got a chance to plug into. Um, so he's been in New York last week, and he's got one more week there. Um, so we just thought it would be a great idea to stop and pray uh, for Brian and, of course, pray for Holly as Brian's away. Um, I think we're about halfway through the sabbatical at this point. So um, if you would join me, let's just lift up Brian in prayer. Lord, thank you uh, for Brian. Thank you for the incredible opportunity you've put in front of him um, to be with some guys in California and do the mentoring work that, that he's got to do there and now to be in New York with our very own Martin Sanders, who we love and respect so much and know. Um, that you have something special for Brian. So uh, I pray that the next week would be great for him, that you would um, do what only you can do, that Brian would receive whatever it is you have for him. We pray for Holly. It's hard to uh, be away for even just a few days, but to be gone for two weeks, we just pray that everything would be uh, well at home, that she would be um, surrounded by friends, and that she would handle this time apart well. We just pray that Brian would get all that you would have for him in the midst of this sabbatical. Thanks for who you are, in Jesus' name. Amen? Hey, um, I want to read for you Romans 8, 28. And this is a verse that many of you have probably committed to memory. Romans 8, 28 says this. It says, we know that all things, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Again, I'm, I'm guessing many of you know this verse and have, have used this verse to offer comfort to people at times, sometimes appropriately, maybe sometimes as Christians we even use it inappropriately. It's kind of our band-aid for somebody who's going through our time. Well, you know, everything works to good. Sometimes it doesn't help so much, but 
Um, some of you were already asking the question, I thought we were studying Philippians. We are. And uh, here's the deal. When we have a passage like Romans 8, 28, uh, we, as followers of Jesus, need to learn to live into that passage. We need to learn to actually live that out. And one of the ways we learn to live into the, the word of God is to see it lived out in other people, to see examples of that and be inspired by that. And so what we're going to study in Philippians today is Paul living into Romans 8.28. I wanted Romans 8.28 to kind of be in your mind because now as we read what we're going to read in, in Philippians chapter 1, it is a perfect picture of Romans 8, 20 things, all things working together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So grab your Bibles and open up to Philippians chapter 1, page 830 in the books under your Bible, I think. Um, I keep saying that and nobody's corrected me, so I assume that's correct. And uh, if you're using your own Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles, mark it up. We are going to be in Philippians for some time because we're going through the entire letter. So um, bring your Bibles, feel free to write in them. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 12. Philippians 1, verse 12. Paul writes, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now it is true that some preach Christ out of envy or in rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. I love this. He says, but what does it matter? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Because of this, I have joy, he says. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I just pray in these next few minutes. Uh, we have very little time to cover a lot of great stuff in your word. I just pray that we would marinate in the words that Paul wrote for us, that we would allow it to penetrate our souls, to penetrate who we are, that we would be the people you've called us to be, uh, all to your glory, to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in week two of the study on Philippians, and we're calling this series A Satisfied Life, how to have more joy, how to have more courage, how to have more contentment. But what we've already determined is that this has nothing to do with circumstances. There is a way for us as followers of God to rise above circumstances and have joy and courage and contentment in our lives. And last week we spent a lot of time kind of setting the groundwork, if you will, or setting the stage or the context of this letter. And I just want to summarize some of the things we talked about last week. Because as we understand the context of what's going on, it makes the letter come alive. It helps the letter to have more uh, fragrance, if you will. So last week we learned that this was not just an inspirational letter, but it was also very instructional. There's something in it that draws us in. You see the deep friendship, and you see what's going on, and, and it inspires us to want that, but he doesn't just leave us hanging with inspiration. There's a lot of actual how-tos in the book of Philippians, both inspirational and instructional, which is great. We also learned that if we as a body 
would really allow the book of Philippians to marinate, that it would change who we are as a church. It would change who we are as fathers and mothers and friends, that there's something in this for everyone. It tells us how to be a friend, not a casual friend, but a deeply rooted and committed friend to one another. So it's a letter of friendship. And the other thing we talked about is a letter of exhortation. If you're here last week, we talked about the girl up on the pole that was encouraged that she could do more than shout. That this letter teaches us how to fan into flame or to encourage one another or spur one another on to love and good deeds. So we talked about all that. And we also just talked about the fact that this was a letter of friendship. Okay? So one of the things that came out of that whole Um, talk about the letter of friendship is that there was a way of writing a letter that when the readers received the letter, they would know right away what type of letter. They would know whether it was a a hierarchical letter we talked about, but they would know whether or not it was a letter of friendship. And one of the ways that we know, and one of the ways the readers would have known that Paul was writing a letter of friendship is with the very beginning of verse 12. So look at verse 12. It says, now I want you to know That one phrase right there, now I want you to know, if we were to go back and look at letters written even outside of the Christian circles, just letters written to friends, that would be a common phrase in a letter of friendship. In the same way that sincerely yours, if you were to look at letters of this day and age, they would, lots of them would end with, right, sincerely yours, you would know that's a, a common way of ending a letter. This was a common way in a letter of friendship to signify that, hey, I'm done with the salutation and now I'm going to tell you what's going on. Now I'm going to let you know. I want you to know all that's happening in my community. I want you to know what's happening in my home. I want you to know what's happening with me. This is where I'm going to tell you about myself. So Paul transitions with a very common sentence or a common phrase that allows us to know that this is a letter of friendship. He says, look at verse 12. Now I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now you see the people in Philippi, they would have known that Paul was in prison and they would have been eagerly expecting his letter, but I think they would have been expecting something different in the now I want you to know statement. I mean, he's in prison. They've invested in this this work of the gospel. They would have expected to hear how things may have been derailed, how much of a nuisance this whole prison thing is again. But Paul kind of turns everything on his head, and he gives them very unexpected news, if you will. He says, now I want you to know what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel. And I love this because the word advance actually means that, that it's, it's actually a military term, and it's the, the word that would be used for the special forces that go in in front of the army. So before you're going to send the army in and, and have a march against in some place, they have people that go in and they, they check the lay of the land. They find out where the obstacles are going to be. They find out where it's going to be difficult. And in this case, the word actually means that advance actually means you go in and remove actual physical obstacles, making the, the way for the gospel to be advanced without being impeded. And I love this because it's pretty subtle, but if you think about it, what Paul is saying is, look, my being in prison is actually being used to remove all the the obstacles or many of the obstacles so that the gospel of Christ can sweep into Rome and have the impact that I want it to have. And what's cool is we know from history that that's exactly what happened. That Paul was the beginning of the stage. This is, this is not just about Paul leading someone to Christ. This is about Paul paving a way or Paul's life being used to pave a way or clear a way, do you see the difference, of the gospel being advanced into Rome. 
And I love this because if in the other analogy we could use, it's like, like he's using Paul to till the soil. He's using Paul to get things ready for what God is about to do. But the readers wouldn't have expected that. They wouldn't have expected to hear Paul say it. So he's already got him a little off guard. What, what he's really saying is, on the contrary, my imprisonment is an awesome thing. It is an incredible thing. God is using it so that the gospel can take hold in Rome. Verse 13, he explains why. He says, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. It's this one sentence in all of the letter of Philippi is a sentence that experts use to tell us that Paul was probably in prison in Rome. We don't really know unequivocally, absolutely, that's where he was, but there's enough evidence from this one sentence to think that because the word whole palace guard there, in your translation, it may say something different, but in the NIV it says whole palace guard. That's actually one word, and it's the word that was used to describe the emperor's special forces, the emperor's bodyguards, kind of if you um, are into that kind of stuff, kind of like the musketeers, you know, that's what the musketeers were for. They were to protect the king. They were his, his personal protectors. Well, in Rome, the emperor had personal protectors. There was probably six to 900 of these guys. They are the green berets, if you will, but their whole job was to be bodyguards and protectors of the emperor. They were there to protect. It's a, it's a very elite force that's there. So the word is very clear. So experts would say that helps us to know. But here's the deal. Paul would have been chained, literally chained, to one of those guys throughout his entire incarceration. And so every four to six hours, a different guard would come in, a different one of these specially trained bodyguards would come in and be chained to Paul. So think about it, throughout the day, there's anywhere from, you know, three, four, five, six different guys who come in and they're chained to Paul. And what we also know, because we see evidence of it, is Paul was allowed to receive visitors. So visitors would come, Timothy was there, Paul was dictating letters that became scripture, Paul was praying, because we see how Paul is just this prayer warrior, and he was on his knees and he was praying. He didn't get to do any of that in private. All of the things that he did, he did with a soldier chained to him. So the soldier got to watch all of Paul's behavior. They got to watch all of what Paul was doing. And, and, and so here's the first application for us to take from today's um, passage. People are watching. The people were watching Paul, right? The guards were watching Paul. They were watching to see how Paul was going to respond. And Paul says, look, they're watching me, and it's become clear to them that I'm here because of Jesus Christ. People are watching. All of the people that worked in the prison, and we even see from this text that not only were the guards watching, and not only were the people working in the prison, but the outside church, those, those people who were believers, were also watching Paul to see how he was going to behave, to see what was actually going to happen. So people are watching. And what we need to understand is that you're being watched. You are being watched. Your spouse is watching you. Your kids are watching you. Your neighbor is watching you. And here's the irony. People who don't even know you are watching you. People who only know, hey, that guy goes to church up there on the corner of Moross and I-94. He says he's a Christian. They're watching you. They are paying attention to what you do. So Paul knew this very clearly. People are watching you. We had this awesome chance a few years ago to go to Morocco. Morocco is a country where you go to jail if you tell people about Jesus. It was an amazing trip. It was a life-changing trip for me. But in one moment in that trip, we got to sit in a restaurant with these two men who had just been released from prison for telling people about Jesus. They were Moroccans. 
And these guys, I don't know how to say it any differently, they glowed with the joy of the Lord. They were literally radiant guys. I've, I've never met anybody quite like these two. And so for me, I would be joyful because I just got out of prison. They were joyful because they got to go to prison. They were literally just so excited that they actually got to go to prison for Jesus Christ. It was like stepping back in time and sitting with two people right out of the Acts Church. It was phenomenal. But they started talking about their conversations in prison. They said, we started telling the prison guards that we were praying for them, and they were amazed by that. They couldn't believe that we would pray for them. And then we told them, we pray for the king. Morocco has a king. We pray for the king. We pray for his court. We pray for the entire government. And they were dumbfounded. The guards were dumbfounded at these guys gentle position and that they would be praying for them. Now think about this. That work, they didn't tell us one story of a guard coming to Christ. But what they did tell us a story of, of God using their incarceration to advance the gospel, to clear the way, because those guys will hear the message of Jesus differently later down the road than had these two guys responded much differently. If they had been embittered, if they'd have been angry, if they'd have been mopey, if they'd have been curled up in a corner crying like a baby, all of that would have served to disrupt the advancement of the gospel. But they responded appropriately. They responded in a Romans 8.28 sort of way. And here are these guys that get to stand in front of these Christians perplexed and say to themselves, wow, because they were watching, because people are watching. And we need to realize people are watching. And the second thing I want you to take from the message today is that people are watching and your response matters. Paul's response mattered. Paul could have done things differently and not advanced the cause of Christ. If Paul had, had had a whole different reaction to being in prison, it wouldn't have had the same effect. Our response matters as to how the gospel goes out around us because people are watching. So Paul wants to make this clear. So in verse 14, look at verse 14. What does he say? He says, and because of my chains, because I'm in prison, most of the brothers and sisters, doesn't say all, but he says, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. This is totally counterintuitive. You see, Paul was arrested. Paul was beaten. He wasn't just beaten a little bit. I'm not sure if he can be beaten a little bit, but he was beaten a lot. He was beaten. So Paul has been arrested and beaten and dragged off to, to prison in Rome. And he's saying, because of this, people are more brave. Look at it. It says, because of this, the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more. His incarceration and his response to the incarceration, right, because people are watching, has actually infused courage and emboldened people to do more with the gospel. You would think that once Paul got arrested and once Paul got beaten, that all the Christians would run to their nearest closet or whatever they have to do, and they would hide. They would say, I don't want to be known as a Christian because I don't want to be arrested and I don't want to be beaten. And Paul said, no, it's just the opposite. I would say this is the uh, William Wallace effect. This is the Nelson Mandela effect. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. effect. This is the Jesus Christ effect, who in courage goes to the cross on our behalf and responds in such a way that it emboldens us, it gives us courage to walk in faith and to, and to actually have courage. So remember, a satisfied life, more joy, more contentment, and more courage. That when we see the courage of others, because we're watching and we see the courage, it emboldens us to have courage as well. People are watching, and your response matters. 
So keep reading because now Paul transitions and he wants to explain another way that the gospel is going forward. He's explaining all of the ways that the gospel is advancing and clearing a path so that the gospel can take over Rome. He says it's true, verse 15, that some preach Christ out of envy or rivalries and others out of goodwill. The, later do so, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. He's comparing two groups of people. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Because of this, I have joy. We don't have a lot of time, but I, there's two things I want us to take from this, this one little paragraph. And the first thing is, Paul is talking about, he is not talking about false teachers. He's not talking about people who are not teaching the message of Jesus. If you read Paul's letters, he speaks very differently about false teachers. There's a lot more animation in what he says when he's talking about people who are taking people away from the gospel of Jesus. These are teachers who are teaching about Jesus, but their motivations are questionable. Their motivation for doing it isn't all pure, but what he's saying is they're still teaching Christ. So it's important that we know that, that this is, this is about people who are teaching Jesus, that Jesus is at the center of their teaching, but their motivations are a little bit askew. And the thing that he says that is so important for us to take from this is he says, what does it matter? What does it matter what their motivations are? I am all about the gospel of Jesus Christ being advanced. All I care about is did somebody else hear the message of Jesus? And the thing that just really struck me as I studied this is this is not the North American church way. This is not how we treat each other. There is no end to the amount of, of anger and hatred that is spewed between dom denominations. There is no doubt. I had somebody come up to me right after the first service and tell me a story that was heartbreaking of how they expressed where they were going to go to the church and people actually told her she was going to go to hell because she's not in the denomination that she used to be in. There is no end to how we spew this hatred back and forth because people do church differently than we do. If we had this attitude, what does it matter? They're telling people about Jesus. How different would that be? Because just so you know, they're watching. The outside world is watching the church of Jesus Christ, and they watch us devour each other, and they say, I want nothing to do with that. The younger generation is watching, and they're saying to themselves, why would I want to be a part of that? I mean, we argue over the silliest stuff and, and the core doctrines there, but people have this, 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 these outside doctrines, things that aren't core to what we believe, and we will persecute. We argue about worship style. We argue about whether or not they're singing hymns or doing contemporary. We, we argue about clothing. We argue in so many different arenas that don't matter. And how different would it would be if we would take Paul's advice and say, I don't care. As long as you're talking about Jesus, I don't care. People are watching, and our response matters. People are watching you, and your response matters. There is this amazing point in the gospel uh, of Mark when John actually comes to, Mark, to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, I saw this man, and he was casting out demons in your name, but he's not one of us, so I rebuked him. Now, I'll guarantee you that John was waiting for an attaboy, a pat on the back, some kind of thing, and, and I know I'm taking a little creative license here, but it's sort of like John was saying, hey, he doesn't go to our church. 
He doesn't wear the clothes we wear. He didn't say it the way I say it. He didn't do it the way I do it. He did it differently. So I told him, no way, man, you're not one of us. And so how did Jesus respond? In Mark 9, 39 and 40, it says, do not stop him. This is Jesus talking. He said, he said, for the one who does a miracle in my name cannot in the next moment say anything bad about me because it's all about Jesus. And he says, for whoever is not against us is for us. People are watching, and our response matters. So Paul's life, Paul's entire life, this, this moment in Paul's life is this beautiful expression of living out Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and, call, and are called according to his purpose. Paul has this amazing ability to live into and model this passage of Scripture in his life. And we get that, and we can read it, and, but we're not supposed to be hearers of the word. We're supposed to be doers of the word. And so we look at that, and we say to ourselves, yeah, I get it. I can quote this verse all day long. I don't know when I learned it, probably as a little kid. I know this verse, but do I actually know it? Do I actually live it? Does this passage actually come out of who I am? And I really started thinking about it, and I think what we need to do with the remainder of the time is we need to ask the question, How? So we've seen the what. We've seen what Paul does. We've seen that the way Paul responds actually serves to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way we respond will actually serve to advance the gospel. But how do we live into Romans 8.28? I want to just give you two things that you can actually do that will help you to live into Romans 8.28. The first thing is you need to remember. You need to apply the, the discipline of memory. If you read the Old Testament, over and over and over, God says, remember. Remember what I've done. Remember where I've brought you. Remember my outstretched arm. Remember the power. Remember all the things I've done. Remember who I am. Remember everything I've done in your life. Because when we look back on life, Romans 8.28, I keep pointing to a blank screen. Romans 8.28, we get it. In hindsight, we get it. Right? We look back in our lives. I had breakfast with Tom Halpin this week. It was, a, it was a gift from the Lord, just one of those divine appointments. And he just sort of ministered to me. I don't even know if he knew he was. And he was talking about this, not even knowing where I was going in the sermon. He said, you know, when I look back on my life, when I look back on your life, Doug, because we've been friends for a long time, he says, I can see the hand of God in your life. I can see those places in your life where things were really messed up and how God used that in my life, in your life. And we were just talking about how easy it is in hindsight to see God's redemptive work. Like, oh, I mean, I know people who have gone through grueling physical ailments, cancer, and they look back and say, that was an amazing time with the Lord. God showed up in ways I've, I learned more about God in that season than, than I've ever. In hindsight, they have this incredible ability to live into 828. The question is, can we live into Romans 828 in the moment? Because in hindsight, we can see it, but can we do what Paul's doing? Paul's in prison, and he's telling about how God is using it. Now, it's easy to see it in, in the past, but can we see it in the moment? And one of the ways we see it in the moment is to remember how it was in the past, to remember how God's hand was with you through those difficult situations, to remember how he used it to grow you, to, rem to remember how he used it to shape you. And then when you're in the midst of the difficulty, somehow you can lean into the sovereignty of God and say, it's okay. I really do believe that all things work together for good, that those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So the first thing you need to do is you need to apply the, the, the discipline of memory, of remembering. 
And then the second thing we need to do is to realize that this is not a self-help book. And the letter to the church in Philippians was not a letter of self-help. And if we're not careful, it can become that. Because you can look at this verse and there's lots of to-dos. Like think about, only think about noble things. What is good? What is no? Yeah, okay, okay, I can do that. I can do that. We can take a lot of these and make them self-help sort of things. But the truth of the matter is one can only live into Romans 8.28 when the Spirit of God is in them. When the Spirit of God infuses something in us that allows us to, to rest in what God is doing. This is a God thing. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the living God put his Spirit in you so that you could live into Romans 8.28 in a spiritual realm, even when it doesn't feel like you can in a physical realm. So we as a staff, um, I, gave, I gave everybody this uh, old book. It was written in the 70s. It's called The Shepherd's look at Psalm 23. Um, Psalm 23, and most of you probably know it, is the psalm that says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It goes on and on from there. Um, and this is actually a book written again in the 70s by a man who was a shepherd. And he just takes the psalm apart verse by verse and talks about the application of being a shepherd. It's really just a, it's a sweet, sweet book. I highly recommend it just as a devotional. Um, it's, it's been awesome. But um, he gets to the part in the psalm where it says, you anoint my head with oil. You anoint my head with oil. And I'm laying in bed and reading this book at night kind of as my devotional. And he begins to talk about this. There's a season of time every year when the insects are at the most, when there's insects all over the place. And the sheep are actually being bitten by the insects. And then because they're being bitten, they end up having scabs. And when they have scabs, it gives even more insects. And I know this is graphic, but stay with me for a minute. So it just gets more and more graphic. He said the sheep will actually get so irritated and so annoyed that sometimes they run themselves to death. They literally, they'll stop eating. They'll always be on the move. They're trying to get some kind of relief from this pestilence. It's just, it's such an annoyance. And he said the, the, the shepherd would, would make this concoction of, of olive oil and herbs and spices, and he would anoint the sheep's head with oil. And the sheep would find rest. And the sheep would find relief from the pestilence around him. And then he says, this, and I, I never do this, A, because I just don't like reading in front of people, believe it or not, but I, I want to read what he wrote because there's no way I can say what he says nearly as well. So this is from a shepherd's look at Psalm 23. He anoints my head with oil. He says, this is a practice, this is a practice matter between myself and the master. It is both a logical and legitimate desire for us to have a daily anointing of God's gracious spirit upon our minds. God alone can form in us the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit alone can give us the attitude of Christ. He alone makes it possible for us to react to the aggravations and the annoyances with questions, with quietness and calmness. When people or circumstances or events beyond our control tend to bug us, it is possible for us to be content, to be serene, when the outside forces are counteracting the presence of God's Spirit in our lives. It's a daily anointing of God's gracious Spirit upon my mind, which is, produces in me a life of such personality traits as joy and contentment and love and patience and gentleness and peace. What a contrast this is to the tempers and to the frustrations and to the irritableness which mar the daily conduct of so many of God's children. What do I do? What do I do in any given situation to expose, is expose it to the master 
expose it to my owner, expose it to Christ Jesus, and say simply, and I want you to hear this prayer because this is the prayer for us that allows us to live into Romans 8, 28. His prayer is this, Oh Lord, I can't cope with these petty, annoying, peevish problems. Please apply the oil of your spirit to my mind, both at a conscious and at a subconscious level. So that my thought life enables me to act and react just as you would. And the Spirit of God will do that. (laughs) We are being watched. People are watching us. Your family is watching us. And the way we respond determines whether or not the gospel is advanced or not. And this isn't about mustering up some kind of something inside of yourself to do it on your own. This is about relying on the Spirit of God in your life to do something supernatural, to have contentment in the midst of difficult situations, something we all need to grow in. I love the fact that today is communion. Again, sometimes I think we look more brilliant than we are. It's communion because this is the day we normally do communion. But what a perfect Sunday for communion. Because Jesus and Paul both teach us that when you come to the table, that you are to remember. That you are to remember all that God has done for you. It actually says that you need to take inventory. What's going on in my life? God, where am I honoring you with my life and where am I dishonoring you? And you need to pray that through. But he says, remember. Remember that I came in human form. Remember that I walked the earth so that I would understand everything about the struggles that you're going through. Remember that I went to the cross. Remember that I was buried. But remember, I rose again in three days. Remember that I am the one who saves. So we have this great chance to apply that first discipline of memory. We get to remember. And as we take communion, even remembering all the ways God has shown up in your life, Even remembering where you were and where you are, what God has spared you from and what God has brought you through. This is a perfect morning for us to apply that discipline that we remember. And then the other part of communion is it's a wonderful time for invitation. Lord, I need more of you. Lord, I need that daily anointing of your spirit. The passage in Psalm 23 says, he anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Would you just come to the table and say, Lord, give me your spirit in such a way that it is just pouring out over the top, that it is just flowing out of me. It's a great chance for us to apply both of these these, uh, disciplines of remembering and inviting the spirit to anoint us. So the band's going to come up. And we are going to worship together. And the ushers are going to come down. And we're going to hand out the elements. And I would um, encourage you to hang on to the elements. And we're going to take them together. But in this time, as we sing, as the elements are passed out, my encouragement to you is to remember and to invite. Remember and invite. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful. Thank you for the work that it does in our lives. I pray that even as we come to the, to the communion table, that we would be introspective, that we would, would apply Paul's words when he says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Take it in a way that's worthy. And, and we don't make ourselves worthy. You do. When we say, sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry that that's part of my life, Lord, that we would be willing to uh, enter into a season of confession and then a season of receiving all that you have for us. Lord, anoint our heads with oil. May the Spirit of God be so apparent in our lives that it flows out of us, that it overflows.
Lord, thank you for this amazing discipline of communion that you have placed before us. Help us to receive all that you have for us as we take this together. Amen.